Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, the founder of Climate One. Today our topic is India. India comes up quickly in any conversation of global carbon uh, emissions and reductions, the world's fifth largest emitter. And today we have two experts with us to discuss India and climate change and clean energy. Varun Rai is a research fellow and program on energy and sustainable development at Stanford University. And Alexis Ringwald is co-founder of Valence Energy and a former Fulbright Scholar in India. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. So, Varun, let's start with you and give us the big picture. Uh, India is often seen as as a, a country that's more reticent to to make uh, mandatory commitments or reductions. So, where are they? We're a couple months going into Copenhagen, and what's India's position with regard to sort of the big geopolitical picture uh, on what they're willing to do on climate change? Sure. India's position going into the climate change negotiations at Copenhagen are, I think, pretty much what we knew a few years ago, which is no mandatory emission cut. In fact, they're not very willing to talk about that. What has changed, though, for good is their willingness to actually come ahead and do something, talk, talk about positive things. And these can be either energy efficiency, demand reduction, and more efficient coal plants and things like that. So now, now the thinking in India is more about per capita emissions, Plus, and this plus is a whole range of other things that India could do, which align both in, which are both in its own interest as well as are also climate friendly. So that is that is where uh, it is. And when you say per capita, that's referring to statements by Prime Minister Singh, who said we, we will not go above the world average per capita. Of course, now India is way below. So if some people are concerned, if they go to the world average per capita. That's still a tremendous increase. Yes, and one, one thing, so there, there are two things on that. First of all, that discussion, that international discussion of what that cap has to be, what that equity means, this, is, this generally comes under the umbrella of equity of climate change or equity of global environment. How do you share that? That discussion is very much active, and there is no solution. So I don't think that even that will be discussed at, at, at Copenhagen, but I don't see any solution at this uh, stage, not because India is a big problem, but because there is no global consensus on that. What that still means in terms of per capita emissions is, for example, the two degree, to limit global climate uh, change to two degrees, we have, the world has to reduce its emissions by 50%, and that means that developed countries have to reduce by 80%. So these are, you know, general numbers. Sure, by 2050. Uh, yeah. By 2050. Now, for example, for the United States, reducing 80% from its current per capita of 20 million tons per year, that brings you down to 3, 4 million tons. And for India, even that is very aggressive. Meaning, you know, India just, is at about one ton now. Yes, but, you know, 2050, they are probably looking at 4 or 5 million tons. So, you know, it's, it's not... It's what I'm trying to convey is from India's perspective, even that statement from the prime minister generated a big discussion within the country, whether how could you go ahead and say that, meaning it's not something without any commitment. It's not as simple to even say that will not never exceed, because if really there's global action on uh, emissions reductions, if developed countries can reduce by that much, I think even with that statement, India has already committed something. 
and we'll get to Alexis in a minute. There, there seems to be some, or you tell me, some softening or some openings recently, some statements uh, by the prime minister and, and the environment minister saying, well, India doesn't want to be a spoiler or, or be, the, be the bad boy. Is it correct to say there might be some softening or openings as we get a little bit closer to Copenhagen? Absolutely. There's no question on that. And, and both because it's the primarily two reasons for that. First, that countries like China and Mexico or India is seeing these countries breaking out a little bit, so India is concerned. India doesn't want to be left out from them, so that's one reason. The second reason, I think, which is more to do with India's own image in terms of global climate change discussions is, so far, India has been seen as this uh, spoiler. And both Indian intellectuals as well as intellectuals around the world, people, policymakers, they have pointed to India, look, there are so many things you're already doing, there are so many things you can do, are climate friendly. Why didn't you just try to start focusing on those things, include those things in the discussions, doesn't hurt you. So these two things have come together and most definitely at the top level it has made uh, a softening of that stand. Interesting that there's actually a little bit of competition among the developing nations Absolutely. for sort of healthy competition because it's for, uh, for uh, uh, jockeying for position. Alexis, uh, when you and I met in Delhi last year, you had just finished driving a caravan of uh, renewable and I believe electric-powered vehicles uh, across India to make uh, the point that it's possible. So what do you see as an entrepreneur that's been working on the ground uh, in terms of what kind of green shoots are popping up on the ground in India? Yeah, so uh, in January of this year, we traveled from Chennai to Delhi, about 2,500 miles, in these solar plug-in electric cars. They're Indian-made um, from a group called Reva in Bangalore. I was a Stanford graduate, and they have investment from the U.S., and it's an exciting technology. We traveled uh, to try and document the top solutions to climate change, and we found things all over the country, including um, just simple things, traditional practices in India that I think are inspiring and that should be replicated in the West, like banana leaf plates or rainwater harvesting projects. Um, we also saw... Hold on, what, banana leaf plates? Yeah. So instead of using styrofoam, you could just use a, a banana leaf plate. And oh, okay. okay. Gotcha. Yeah, to eat off of. Um, and uh, simple things like that. And then also... Uh, more advanced things that were happening at the universities that we visited where they were developing, you know, solar robots and, um, and other kind of more sophisticated technologies um, by entrepreneurs and university graduates that I think show, show hope and show promise that things are already happening on the ground in the country. So who's going to solve this? We often have this debate uh, here in Silicon Valley in the U.S. whether this really ought to be a policy-led uh, effort, that policy needs to be set in place first. And other people say, look, government ought to get out of the way. Technology, innovation, perhaps with some government funding, could really uh, uh, make a dent in the climate problem. So which do you think it is? I mean, I see out of India, there's 500,000 engineering graduates coming every year. And that is a, a powerful testament to the fact that there are engineers who are, and others who are, who are ready to be harnessed to develop these technologies. I think kind of putting in the right policy frameworks and, and some government uh, R&D money towards setting up centers and encouraging universities to, to develop these locations, these incubators, could go a long way in, in fostering the entrepreneurship there. And Varun, what do you think? I mean, yeah, I, th I think when talking about scale, you know, you, you really have to have the right policies in place. And a lot of the things that the universities are doing, that engineers are trying to do in terms of green technology, these are both in terms of interest because they learn about these things globally and also about just waiting for something to happen in the future so that can be taken advantage of in terms of business. But really to make the difference, you have to have the right policy. So I think that is very very important. And if you look 
at other places across the world, be it Europe or California, uh, there have been entrepreneurs have played a big role, but that has come piggybacked on a good, friendly policies as well. But good, friendly policies often the eye, in the eye of beholders, and they take a long time, especially in messy democracies like India or the United States. So what do you say to people who say, look, we've got to get going on this fast, and government's taken too long to decide and study and, and you know, get, go through the deliberative process? Meanwhile, Rajendra Pachari, who is obviously based in Delhi, says the developed countries have six years to, for emissions to peak. We don't have a lot of time to do policy studies and get things in place. We need action now. Well, the, the thing is, you know, how do you get paid for it? How, I mean, for example, if I'm a green entrepreneur, if I have to go around and set up gigawatts worth of solar plants, I need to, yeah. I need that assured demand. I need to make sure that I get paid for it. And all my good intentions of reducing global warming come to nothing so long as I Ultimately, I get paid for it. So be it today or tomorrow, you do need the policies. That is where really the money comes from, I think. And let's pick up on that because how many people in, in India have no reliable access to any electricity, energy poverty in India? Well, no access to modern modern energy sources, about 50% of the population. That's about 500 million. And talking about reliable energy, that number goes up higher. It's about 700 million people do not have access to reliable energy. And you've written about how uh, India's primary goals, obviously, are economic development, first and foremost, getting energy and, and other basic needs to those people, and, and reductions is kind of a luxury down the road, right? So how can they uh, – what's happening in terms of uh, electricity reform and pricing that might, A, get electricity to those people and also provide pricing incentives for cleaner electricity rather than coal, which is, provides mostly electricity in India? Absolutely. That's a very important point. Just just to give some numbers, over a third of the electri electricity generated in India is stolen, meaning it is generated and people either just use it for uh, household consumption or also some industries and companies also steal it. Now, what, what it means is you do not have any control over the pricing of that, meaning you cannot expose that part of the demand to demand reduction or price signals. Now, that's very inefficient when you try to put on solar or gas on the grid or nuclear on the grid. It's still being stolen. So you, you see you don't have that uh, price uh, flexibility. The first and foremost thing that India really needs to do is to make its grid system, distribution system, very efficient. And uh, some of the states in India has already done that. India has a national policy that was put in place in 2003 called the Electricity Act of India which tries to incentivize some of the states to do that. The things that you mentioned about democracy and time-taking, that's exactly what has come in the way. So there are a lot of the states have not uh, still done much, but few states, for example, Gujarat, Delhi, um, Tamil Nadu, they're doing pretty good on reducing the losses. To take the case of Delhi, it has reduced its losses from 50% of stolen electricity down to 25% in five years. And... We have done some, run some numbers. If you can take that type of efficiency gains across India, that means emissions reductions of about 250 million tons per year in 10 years. And put that number in perspective, the entire European carbon market is about 340 million tons. So, you know, if you can improve the efficiency, not only do you need less generated power. Sure. That's a big Not point. only can you yeah. reach more poor people, but also you're 
you just reduce the emissions by so much. Well, buildings is another area where there's great uh, opportunity for efficiency, both in the United States and in India. And Alexis, you were recently at a was it green building conference. So what's happening in India on, on, in terms of energy efficiency, both of the existing uh, buildings as well as, as new ones? Yeah, I think uh, existing building owners, you know, hotel chains and retail chains find that the grid is, is pretty unreliable and that they have to uh, – uh, rely on diesel generators on site. So for them, energy is a huge expense because they're running a significant portion of the day on these diesel, gener- diesel generators, of which sometimes the cost of, of running is about four times more per kilowatt hour in cost than, than running off the grid. And so I think uh, there are increasingly efforts and interest um, not only to smarten the grid, which is what um, Varun was talking about, I find incredibly important, but also to smarten buildings up so they're not consuming so much and so that um, they are aware of which source they're running on and they're aware of what they're paying at that given moment. It's often thought, although some people debate this, that there's actually a premium for, for green building or efficiency. I mean, is, can India afford to pay the extra 1% or 2 or 3% to, uh, or do they have the cost incentives in place to, to recapture that over the life of a building? I don't even know why it should be more expensive because I, I find in traveling across the country, I found beautiful green buildings of, from, from historical eras in which the traditional architecture was more green than what you see today. And I think now there's an awareness of going back towards recognizing using local materials and natural cooling systems, which they had in their you know, earlier former Maharaja palaces, rather than building purely glass you know, office greenhouse buildings. Um, and so I think uh, that's something we can all learn from. Back to basics. Uh, you mentioned coal earlier, Varun, and uh, we need to talk about coal because, as I said, 60% of, uh, I believe, of India's electricity comes from coal. You've written about uh, supercritical, I'm not really sure what that means, but highly efficient uh, coal plants. And is there really any path, any avoiding uh, in India really just consuming more coal, and, and which has accounts for a tremendous portion of uh, global greenhouse emissions? So on coal right now, the message for India is good and bad. Uh, The good message is, contrary to conventional wisdom, India does not have much coal. At production rates, let's say production rates of what the production rates will be in 2020, India has reserves for at most four decades, four to five decades. So India is extremely concerned about that, and that is where India's own interests of its energy security aligns well with climate change because India is having to think about alternatives to coal, for example, in terms of nuclear. India is really looking ahead, not in terms of deployment right now, but in terms of future, of how they can make nuclear the mainstay of the entire energy supply. So just to give you an example, so, so that was the good part. The, the bad part from the climate change perspective is that looking into the future, the next two decades, really there are not many options for India. Uh, besides coal. India is trying to do solar and nuclear, but the deployment... Does it have nuclear technology now? Does it have the ability and the financing to do nuclear now? The big big holdup, it has has technology. The big holdup is fuel supply, and that is what a lot of the discussions... Uranium. Uranium. And India India doesn't want to to depend on uranium because... uh, Domestic supplies of uranium are very limited, so India has this plan of one, two, three. They want to do uranium, thorium, and then they want to move on to fast breeder plutonium. And that is what India's own plans are because of energy security concerns. They don't want to be dependent on an international fuel system 
they want to have the control themselves. So they got lots of coal. It's not going to last them a really long time, but it's the only really low-hanging fruit. Solar, other sources can't scale up fast enough to make a dent in coal. In the next two decades, yes. Oh, so, okay. so, so then we come to the point of, so what do you do? And the answer there is really efficiency of coal plants. So just to give you an idea, India's average efficiency of coal plants right now is 30%. China is a little higher. United States is about 36 37%. Europe is about 38 39%. Now, moving forward... So that means that, that say, it's 40%. That means 40% of the actual energy is captured and 60% is lost is, is as lost heat. As heat. And yeah. those are because of thermodynamic limitations and how much what you can do with the energy in the coal. Okay. Now, moving forward... From a climate change perspective, what you want to do is build as efficient coal plants as you want. And not only in India, but anywhere in the world. China has been doing that very aggressively. They have been building supercritical. But looking into the next decade, they are building more and more ultra-supercritical, which are very efficient, 45 46% efficient plants. But what about the carbon? Are they, are they looking at carbon capture and sequestration? I know you do research in that area. Yes, and and that's, that's, that's a more uh, of... A futuristic. Yeah, the U.S. is no one's done that effectively, really. It's yes, there are there are there are several demonstration projects going around around the world, but you know, you know, to have a discussion on CCS, it's 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 a lot more, you know, what's and ifs question. It's a lot more about technology and financing. But I, I want to come back to the question of efficiency of coal plants, okay. and that is where China has been very aggressive. India is becoming more aggressive, not because of climate change concerns. But because, I mentioned before, it has limitations in terms of coal supply, not only in terms of the volumes of coal, but also how fast it can produce it. And that is why they want to use it as efficiently as possible, which means they want to burn it as efficiently as possible, which is good news for climate. So moving forward, I think what has really changed in the last one year in India is this outlook of what they want to build in terms of coal power plants. And the change has been very positive. Moving forward, they really want to build as much supercritical as as they want as as they can and you mentioned financing so alexis uh looking at, at capital inflows is, is there a lot of venture capital flowing to startups in uh, clean tech startups in india or are they looking for uh are they cash starved like uh because of the financial crisis yeah i definitely see a huge momentum especially among the um both the Silicon Valley VC firms as well as the Indian ones to set up offices over there and look at the clean tech companies, not only in energy, um, but also in water, because water is a huge challenge, which is also related to climate change. Um, but there's a lot of enthusiasm. There's a clean tech incubator that just got launched at one of the IIMs at Ahmedabad. Um, and entrepreneurs are definitely coming together, forming groups with Thai, you know, the Indus entrepreneurs and forming um, kind of networks, especially at universities and, and, and forming, uh, you know, trying to link up with the VC world. It, I heard recently that some Silicon Valley VCs did a, did a list of, uh, let's say, top 20 companies in batteries, top 20 in solar, top 20 in wind, and there's very few U.S. companies in there. General Electric might be the one. Uh, and a lot, there's several Chinese companies. Where, what are the leaders in, in India, and what are the hot sectors? Um, in India, for existing companies, I mean, wind. You know, you, you have your traditional large-scale groups. You know, you have your, your Suzlon, and in, in solar, you have your Moser Bayer. Um, among the entrepreneurs, those are those are still kind of emerging, and I think that there's some exciting things happening in water. Um, I think also in, in biogas, um, there's a whole group of, uh, of entrepreneurs coming up there, um, and and also in, in green buildings, green building materials in particular. 
Is biogas meaning like methane from landfill or what? What is biogas? Yeah, methane from landfill, methane from 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 cow dung. Um, I think that's a you know a good traditional source, and it's not even just in technology innovations. I think that there's business model innovations for for providing access to renewable energy, um, which I think is is something that's very exciting among some of the startups. It's not only just the the next gadget that comes up, but also how do they deliver and provide these services, linking up with microfinance institutions, um, you know, for small scale lending, small scale loans. Um, and how do they reach out to those remote areas that are, are showing some innovation? And I'm on biomass. There's what ABC. What's the what does that stand for? The the, the cloud. A lot of people use wood and other biomass, basically burning wood f- for for heating and for and for fuel. So are there some low tech solutions here where where that could be replaced by uh, Dr. Pachari has and then others have sort of their uh, solar stoves or their their solar lanterns so that we can kind of work it from the bottom up as well as you know, nuclear plants are obviously you know take many years, billions of dollars. Yeah. So ABC stands for atmospheric brown clouds mm-hmm. and recent research has shown that about so these are these are soot particles or carbon particles that hang around low in the air and research Is that has black sh- carbon black carbon yeah. yes yes and and i said carbon black yes mm-hmm. it's black carbon and uh, so these lead to net warming effect now recent research has also shown that two third of that comes from fuel uh, fuel wood uh, cook stoves in houses because a lot, most of the rural areas in India use use these things. And there is a very strong correlation between atmospheric brown cloud and fuel wood burning in India. Now, the solutions are definitely not high-tech. It's, it's, these are questions about more about uh, business models and also getting, getting advanced cook stoves, which are efficient cook stoves, that are also consistent, for example, with cultural uh, preferences for cooking. Sure. Mm-hmm. So, so these are things, and you know, for example, China has had a very, very successful cook stove distribution program where they have distributed a, about 100 million cook stoves. We did the calculation for India. If you could distribute 60 million of these advanced cook stoves, and, and these advanced cook stoves is, is some cook stove that will arrive at some point. If you could distribute about 60 million of that, then that could lead to climate change benefits of about 200 million tons CO2 per year. So that's equivalent to what I mentioned earlier about efficiency gains from the grid efficiency. Right. So these are large numbers and not very high-tech solutions. It's, it's about actually getting together and, and doing it. I think India, certainly this is something that India has tried to do for a long time now, not again because of climate change benefits, but because of its rural and poverty-related programs. But now... The climate change angle is also coming onto it in India. There is international pressure and attention, and India is also trying to get its hand around this problem. Well, is it something that India would reach its hand in, the government would reach its hand into its pocket to pay for, or would that have to be some kind of uh, business model where people would sell these things, or would they be given by the government? I, I think I think there's both opportunity and a need for both of these parts. So India will certainly do it because it's a big part of their poverty reduction uh, program or in you know, lifting rural livelihoods, but there is also scope for business models, perhaps including programmatic uh, clean development mechanism funding. There is good opportunity for that as well. It fits very well with both these uh, t- types of fundings. Mentioned water, and I want to touch on that before we we close, uh, because people are increasingly aware and concerned about the melting of the the Tibetan glacier, the Tibetan plateau, and how that feeds many of the uh, rivers in in Asia that 
supply water for agriculture and subsistence in China and India. And is this really on the sort of popular consciousness yet in terms of what that's going to mean to to daily livelihood when when snow melt in those rivers declines and, and what the so the, the economic and political consequences might be downstream? I think it is certainly not on the popular concern. Uh, radar. It is. It is on the radar of the top people. It is on the radar of top policymakers. Really, the people on a day-to-day basis are. They're aware of the consequences. You know, there are increasing evidences of uh, occurrences of floods and droughts in India. So, so people are aware of the effects, not necessarily what's what's causing them or what's mm-hmm. going to happen down the line. Water is a very serious issue, not just in India, in many other parts of the world. And Alexis mentioned that you know there, it's 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 another area that is receiving attention. Unfortunately, I do not think something very serious is still on the road. That is something where I think it is headed in the direction of crisis in India. And you know, Tim, Tim Flannery, who excuse me, who's who's head of the uh, Copenhagen Climate Council, a group of business people and, and government people and academics. Uh, spoke recently about uh, gave quite a stern warning about it. If, if Copenhagen fails, there'll be resource wars within 10 years. And he was talking about water and, and other things. And I don't think just particularly in China and India, but but other places where we'll start to see. Um, and many people would argue you were already seeing in Africa and elsewhere that uh, water is, is what's the saying that you know whiskey's for drinking and water's for fighting. That we're going to see some <laughs> fighting over water. And not to be too dire about this, but but it, you, it's not hard to con convey images of, of um, bo- cross-border conflicts, particularly where tensions are already high, China, India, Pakistan, where water kind of tips the balance and, and things get kind of... So is that... Have you heard discussions about that? Is that on the... And you don't have to wait for you know, full effects of climate change to make the resource and water wars true. Yeah. You know, in many parts of India, and I, I grew up in a village, and I, I've seen what what water really means for these people. First of all, electricity is free. So farmers are pumping diesel uh, pumps to bring out water. There are parts of India where the water level is decreasing one meter or even at higher paces. The the water level depth is decreasing at that fast level. So it is, it is really getting to a, a very bad tipping point. And I, I do not see... Uh, that as an unrealistic scenario of uh, water resource wars. Alexis, let's finish on a, on a happy note about entrepreneurialism, and I don't want to end on a downbeat on, on, on water. Um, are you encouraged by the entrepreneurs and, and, and also the young people that you've seen? I think it was quite impressive that you were working with the Indian Youth Climate Network. There's obviously a group of uh, – how big is that group, and how energized are they around this issue? Yeah, the Indian Youth Climate Network started last year, over a year and a half ago, of just you know a, a collection of – a handful of less than five people, and now is, is numbers in the hundreds of thousands of people who've joined the network. And they've already, uh, you know, they're, they're taking part in the government delegations that go to the Copenhagen and, and to Poznan last year. Um, they have a voice. They were invited to submit their their ideas, their, their position to the parliament in India. Um, and so people are listening. Members of parliament are listening, and the government is listening. So I'm inspired by everything that they're doing, um, and they're a mass that, that is mobilizing. They recognize that this is you know, an important issue on climate change, but it's about their energy security. It's about their local environment. Um, it's about future business opportunities. Um, and so for them, this is uh, an exciting and, and very important issue. Um, entrepreneurs, I see both in India and also in the U.S., uh, a lot of 
now U.S. trade missions led by the Department of Commerce that are heading over to India um, to look at opportunities, meet with business partners there, meet policymakers, understand how can we promote this U.S.-India clean tech collaboration, um, which I think even perhaps more than uh, or more quickly than climate negotiations um, may be a sign that, you know, maybe we can move forward progressively. Once you have business interests um, and co- companies and uh, entrepreneurs sharing ideas and putting up projects in both countries, um, then you get to see some real some real action. So I'm I'm uh, I'm 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 hopeful. I see a lot of things happening, and uh, entrepreneurs are definitely moving forward in both places. So the youth and the entrepreneurs will. Uh, positive note, Varun. Any last comments? Sure. I just want to add add to what Alexis said, and this this ties back to one of the first things that you asked: is has there been a softening of stance by India? Mm-hmm. And you know, these delegations from the U.S. and other parts of the world going and connecting with the business people, connecting with the youth, connecting at the ground level, I think that has been a really successful strategy that the world has followed in engaging developing countries rather than just negotiating between the prime ministers and the president. What you are seeing really is a much broader... Citizen diplomacy? Absolutely, or? absolutely. And that is, you know, now the policymakers are not just thinking. It's, it's not just a one-way... De- dialogue where they assume that they're representing their populi. In fact, now the populi is starting to interact with them, and they find that uh, the civil society there cares more about the environment than they had thought. So that has been a really uh, good progress. We had a program here at Climate One a while ago on the Hope and Hagen ad campaign, uh, <laughs> which uh, is being rolled out. It was it's created uh, by some advertising agency on Madison Avenue at the request of the Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. And one of their taglines is, lead the leaders, is exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. People mm-hmm. need to kind of bring yeah. the leaders along because the yeah. people are out front of the leaders in this yeah. case. And that was the point of our road tour, is really to document the most exciting things that were happening across the country of India. Both There are you know, a group of Americans and a group of Indian from the Indian Youth Climate Network, but it was to show these innovations not only to the Indian government so that they felt hopeful and you know reminded about the things that are happening in their own country, but to show it to the world and, and make India more accessible as a place for entrepreneurs and young people to link up and, and ideas to kind of share um, and, and open up these opportunities for collaboration, which will hopefully you know be leading the leaders. There we go. And on that, I'd like to thank Alexis Ringwald, co-founder of Valence Energy and a former Fulbright scholar in India, and Varun Rai, who's a research fellow on the program on energy and sustainable development at Stanford University. I'm Greg Dalton, and thanks for listening to Climate One.